Hello and welcome to another episode of A Spoonful of Recovery. Just as usual, we will be going through symptoms of invisible illnesses, including mental health. And in this episode, we will be talking about Palestine and the ongoing genocide. If any of these topics aren't for you, then this episode might not be for you either. So today I have Dima. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, um, my name is Dima. I am a British Palestinian. I was born and raised in Gaza and then I moved to Sheffield, which is why I've got this Yorkshire accent. And I'm really excited to be here today. Thanks so much for having me on. You were born in Gaza. That is, for a lot of people, going to be like quite eye-opening. I think especially for people who didn't know about what was happening in Palestine prior to October. There'll be a lot of people who have grown up knowing about the you know, conflict and the issues around the wall. I mean, there's some people who have just discovered that, you know, there's settlements and stuff. Can you just describe what it was like being born in Gaza? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think as a child, um, growing up in what is now really widely recognised as an apartheid system, you don't realise the extent of which, you know, the the impact that it has on on you until almost I left and also the full extent of which when I became an adult, because when you're you're there, you don't realise it. And I think that's a kind of... The first thing is it's, it's really interesting to know it from a child's point of view because children don't really know better is the first thing. And secondly, is that they haven't seen anything else. So they're not really aware of what's going on in the outside world. And I think looking back at my childhood, I didn't really realize until I left Gaza what it was like to be a child in Gaza. And I think that's so incredibly sad. And how old were you when you moved over to England? I was seven years old. So we moved to Birmingham first and then I moved to Sheffield. And I just remember when I first came over that I just found it really, really hard and really lonely because, you know, my family was in Palestine and I'd gone from having this really big, supportive, extended family to kind of just it being me, my mum, my dad, my my brother. The weather was terrible, so I found that really hard. But looking back, I think if I hadn't moved, I probably wouldn't have known the extent of which being a, a child in Gaza was you know, it's terrible on so many different levels. And now again, as an adult, I look back and I think I would not wish that on any child at all, but yet millions of children are living in Gaza in those same conditions, if not so much worse. Yeah. And for them, they're probably just thinking, is this what happens around the world? Is this just life? But you obviously moved over and saw the difference. What was it like in school? Because things happen every year. I knew about the issues in Palestine when I was six. So I've grown up knowing about it and raising awareness and the school I was in. It was a very mixed school, so we we were always aware. And then there was people who, like, say in college and uni, were just like, what's Palestine? Yeah, so I think I just found it really lonely to begin with. Um, and I, the one thing that I want to kind of say that's not often said about um, the situation in Gaza is obviously now... And for a really long time, Palestinians have been subjected to settler colonialism, illegal military occupation and apartheid. Um, And, you know, in in Gaza now, 16 years of siege. But 
most importantly, and what we have to remember is to humanize the Palestinians. And I want to say that I've never experienced anything like the community that I had in Gaza and that my family had in Gaza. I think the people there are really for one another. Everything is so shared and everyone is so supportive of one another. Family networks are so strong, friendships are so strong and the communitarianism, the sense of community there is unparalleled anywhere in the world. And I'm not just saying this as a Palestinian, if you speak to many people that have visited Palestine, they will tell you the same. I'm sure that was your experience when you, you know, you were in Palestine. And so I, I don't want to yeah. preach the converted, but it's, it's exceptional. So I think whilst this, I mean, not whilst, but despite and despite everything going on at the moment, the one thing that Gazans continually show us is their sense of community. And that's really what's keeping them going. They have each other and that's incredible. Mm. That's something that I really experienced being in Palestine was people were just so kind. I mean, my card didn't even work on the first day and I was just panicking. I had to book different accommodation. I was held at the airport for about six, seven hours. You know, it wasn't a nice experience, but the cafe owners were like oh thank you you know for coming and welcome to palestine it's it's your home as well and i was getting like free cake free coffee and i was just like no it's not your fault and stuff and they were just like no welcome and stuff are you okay and i just thought they don't show that in the media they're just like these palestinians are a bit bit loud and oh how dare they um, want to like fight back over these like walls and stuff which is not normal Growing up, I know like at the like now, and I don't know if you feel it as well, there's a lot more solidarity around the world. I think back in the day, like even 10 years ago, there wouldn't have been as much, as many people or diverse groups, I would say. It would have been certain communities that sort of come out to protest and stuff. Have you, have you noticed a sort of difference yeah, 100%. Actually, I was um, speaking about this the other day and I just said how I think the facade is falling now. I think, I mean, the BBC, the BBC's reporting, in my opinion, is, is not always, you know, I personally can't listen to the BBC for more than three minutes because their reporting is can largely be considered to be one-sided. Um, but even the BBC now is just presenting the facts on the ground, because there's no ifs, there's no buts. Um, bombing a hospital is a war crime. And so I think the facade now, it's just, it's falling apart. And I think that's why we're seeing people in their thousands and in their millions mobilizing for Palestine. Because now, you know, the word is, is really, really widely spread in. I think that's why we're seeing so many different demographics that we maybe weren't seeing. 10, 15 years ago. So for example, when I first moved to the UK, most people that I knew didn't know about Palestine. Most people that I know now do know about Palestine. So yeah, it's really, really interesting to see that shift. And in not that long of a period of time, you're not talking generations and generations of people, you're talking people from my generation. How did you say at school sort of, or did you even growing up explain the situation in Palestine? Or did you like kind of think, oh, just to protect my peace, I'm not going to engage in those conversations because I've been seeing a lot of 
TikTokers and musicians who are Palestinian, and I didn't even know they were Palestinian. And one of them said, oh, even though he went to protests and stuff as a child, he didn't feel like he could say it out loud, whereas now he can say it and the world's like, yeah, we hear you. But before it was like, more not sure if I could do this, it might affect my career or my friendship groups. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting because I think the Palestinian identity, especially because we've been refuged all over the world, literally all over the world, um, every Palestinian, you know, individual and every, every Palestinian person, their circumstance is so unique to them. And, you know, their, their capacity and their, their openness of the community to, to engage and speak about their identity is so different for every Palestinian. So I lived in Sheffield um, from the age of 10 and then we moved to Rotherham. And to be honest, the school that I went to both in Sheffield and in Rotherham wasn't massively, um, you know, anti-Palestine. I think there was just not a lot of understanding about Palestine. But then as I started, so I didn't really get a lot of pushback, but then when I went to university in London, I, I realized that actually there was a really big lobby of people that weren't pro-Palestine. And I mean, I'm saying not pro-Palestine really softly, Zionist leaning, Zionists. And I was, sh I mean, I was 18, but I was shocked to see that this wasn't just the establishment, that there were genuinely people that weren't pro-Palestine. And they just kind of came out the woodwork and I was like, what? Like, there's actually people that don't support Palestine? I was, sh I was shooketh. So yeah, I think for me, um, the, the, the reality of that when I was 18 and, and kind of over the past few years in my, in my adulthood, in my early 20s, it's been realizing that there are people that might not be standing in full solidarity with Palestine. And given the circumstances of which I was growing up, that was a big shock to me. And why do you think that is for so long that people have just misunderstood what's been going on? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, why I don't think they're pro-Palestine. Well, I think that the mainstream media for a long time did a really good job of kind of hiding the truth, to be honest, um, in my view. I think inaccurate reporting, client journalism, um, and not just with Palestine, we've seen this before with the Iraq war, the deliberate silencing of the truth in, a, in order to, you know, serve the establishment. Um, that's not a coincidence. It's a purposeful policy choice. And it's, yeah, simply put, it's not honest journalism. It's it's client journalism. They're working for the client, the client being the establishment. The second thing is is the establishment who um, we see time and time and time again have one goal and will eliminate anyone who's not working for that goal. Um, no matter how favoured they are by the public. And we've seen that again and again and again. We continue to see it now, you know, the the firing of even Jewish MPs that speak out against Israeli war crimes and Israeli apartheid getting sacked from their jobs when the whole purpose of their job is to be political. So I, th I think the establishment is a, another really big thing. And then the third thing, I, I think, to be honest, is you know, Britain's history, because Britain is, is a as a coloniser, they've never been colonised. So if you look at the difference in solidarity between um, the Brits and the Irish, you know, even though they're not that far geographically, the Irish know what it feels to be colonised. So they have that solidarity and they want to, 
not only actively learn about it, but actively prevent it from happening again. Um, whereas the, the Brits and the British history, I think, even if there's a willingness, there's as, as some as a group of people that have never been subjected to it, it can be quite difficult to relate, I think. Um, but I think now that's changing with education. I think the amalgam of those three things are now changing. So, you know, I think the mainstream media is no able no longer able to be complicit and there are alternative sources of media um, the establishment is changing i think that despite the fact that you know all these things are happening like boycott laws are getting in, you know coming into into play and all the mps that speak out against palestine and speak out against what's, what's happening in palestine even um i think all of that is is changing as part of the movement and i think as a result the british people are kind of willing to learn and willing to know um, which is incredible it definitely is I don't know if you've heard of the journalist John Pilger he's like an amazing journalist literally he is what I class as a journalist and he did a documentary about Palestine in 2002 so when I was 12 but it was shown at like two o'clock in the morning and obviously not a lot of people would have seen it but it's still on YouTube and he goes over and asks pressing questions and says, you know, well, why is it okay to shoot an 80-year-old woman who's got a stick and just walking? Like, how is that acceptable? And they were just like, oh, we might have got a few civilians. And it's the same thing that's happening now as well. And he also did something around um, the war you don't see. And he focused on the Iraq war. And again, when they were interviewing people and showing the truth, it was at three o'clock in the morning to say, well, we did we we showed it to the public but obviously unfortunately not a lot of people saw that so i think yeah you're right a lot of people are seeing citizen journalism and the journalists on the ground as well on instagram sort of saying this is what's actually happening and for them to continuously be silent how has it made you feel seeing people shift their opinions and show more solidarity especially the ones that probably have admitted they didn't know much about what was going on. Yeah, I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of blaming people for not knowing. But actually, the fact that loads of people didn't know before is, again, like I say, a deliberate policy choice. It just is. Because I think it was known by the establishment that we would see mobilising, people mobilising in their thousands, in their millions for Palestine and what's going on there because it's abhorrent, it's atrocious, um, it's fully televised and we're, ha you know, we're watching a genocide happen right before our eyes. And I think the establishment and the media, who's complicit in Israeli war crimes, knew that if this was to get out in any way and the, the, the truth would be known, that, you know, there would be this uproar that's currently happening and we're seeing you know, calls for an intifada everywhere, all around the world. We're seeing lots of, you know, thousands, millions of people in so many cities, in so many countries everywhere, you know, Chile, Korea, Indonesia, the Philippines, South Africa. So, yeah, I think it, the fact that, that people didn't know is is really not really any fault of their own. It's because they were denied essentially denied honest journalism and the truth, which is deeply upsetting because, you know, like we've seen, people aren't going to put up with the truth. How do you mentally deal with it? Because we're not programmed to even witness 
the stuff that we're seeing, like the raw images that are coming out every day. And as someone who's grown up there and has got family and friends there, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it, there's there's kind of two, two main answers that I have for this. So the first one is that these images are really terrible. Um, and even as you say, we're speaking on this podcast, but we had to trigger on it because it's understandable that the things that are happening are, un, are not un, unfathomable. And they're so traumatic and they are so triggering. But to be honest, those things should make us feel that way. Watching kids die in this manner, civilians die in this manner, hospitals getting bombed should shake us to be a level of anger that it never happens again. The fact that it is happening should make us feel this way and it should make us feel sad. That is a normal, raw human reaction that is completely proportionate and on balance with the unfathomable images coming out of Gaza right now. Um, and the fact that we feel that they are shocking and they are terrible should mobilize them, mobilize us as people who aren't being impacted by it personally on the ground to do something about it so that we never have to see anything like that again. That's the first thing. I think it's completely natural. And the second thing is, as a Palestinian who was born and raised in, in Gaza, I think learning in my adulthood about the impact that it has on you, because know, you know the things that you experience as a child, you carry with them for the rest, carry with you for the rest of your life. The, the impact of trauma. I mean, Gabor Mate wrote a really interesting book that I recently wrote about eight that he recently read and recently wrote and I read, sorry, about ADHD and it's called Scattered Minds, and it's about how. People who have been subjected to trauma because it's so, un, you know, that the human brain literally can't handle it. It just, it, they just can't, it can't, you know, survival, in, survival instinct is that there's so many bad things happening, but you also have to balance as a human, like the brain has to balance looking after you as a person. And it can't do that if it's overwhelmed with all these really ter terrible things. So this is the human brain and the way that he, explains it is that the brain literally scatters so that it can comp compartmentalize these things and in doing so that looks like ADHD because your brain is so many different places you know your mind is so many different places at once that that looks like hyperactivity because you're bouncing between all the things that you have to think about so for example this is your brain you're thinking about school and then you're thinking about going to work and all the, the normal things like going going to work going to school being with your family but then on the other hand is the really really traumatic stuff like occupation uh, the apartheid state you know and because of trauma then your you know your, your brain literally just can't handle it and then that looks like ADHD and that's irreversible so trauma has a real and irreversible impact on the brain because our minds literally can't can't cope with it it's 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 impossible um and that's why we're kind of seeing now, so many children, I think the most recent statistic is 95% of children in Gaza have anxiety, depression, PTSD. I think it's something like 95% of children. And of course they're going to have because they're living through, you know, hyperactivity is another one. They're living through, you know, circumstances that the human brain just can't handle. 
yeah, I just think the fact that we're fortunate enough to even switch our phones off and go to sleep without any like bombs going off or any soldiers intervening, like it's such a privilege, but there's this enormous guilt as well of like, how can we continue with our lives knowing that this has happened and how many people have turned a blind eye as well, which has been such a challenging thing to sort of witness and live through. Are you allowed to go back to Palestine? Because it's a story for many Palestinians that they leave and they're not allowed to return. So my mum is from the 1948 Palestine. So my family was refuged and my grandparents left. And when they left, they left to go to Jordan, which is where my mum was born. And then after that, they moved to Syria. And my grandparents still haven't had the right of return. My granddad is... 80, sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional. Um, oh, it's okay. My granddad is 88 years old and he will probably never return to where, you know, the, the, where they're from in, in Palestine, um, 1948 territories. And the same with my grandma. And they're both older than the state of Israel. And my mum my has never been to um, El Majdal, you know, where my family's from. She's 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 never been there because we've not we've, we don't have the right of return and on top of that we don't have the opportunity to visit Israel we, we've we've never we've never had the opportunity as Palestinians we're considered a, a security threat so then my mom was essentially refuged to Gaza um, which is actually met my dad and I was born but now it's the same issue with me we moved to the UK. And now I'm not able to return to Gaza. I haven't been to Gaza um, for a very long time now. I went once to visit my grandparents when I was maybe nine or 10, a couple of years after I moved. But since then, I haven't been able to enter because of the siege. So that's that's really, really, really difficult for me because, you know, not only will I probably not see Gaza for a long time, but my family's still there and... It's it's just it's yeah I it's it just goes to show that the the concerns that Gazans have about leaving their homes right now and the fear that they may never be able to return is completely legitimate because that is the story of so many Palestinians. I saw one um, content creator say um, that because of what happened in the Great Nakba in 1948 that a lot of people still have the key to their original homes because they have the faith that one day they will be able to return and I was like oh my god that's just so like it's so sad but it's just the fact that you they feel so strongly about their homes like just to be displaced like that is just yeah when you're seeing people say on social media or at marches advocating for Palestinians what do you think people are getting right and what do you think people you kind of look at them and think, oh, we should stop doing that, or oh, that's not really what we want as Palestinians. I think so far the protests have um, generally been very, very good. Lots of solidarity and people uniting for one really important cause, which has been incredible to see. I think one thing that we have to be really careful about is the Palestinians, the Palestinian people and Palestinians 
they know what they're doing. They really know what they're doing. Like they have been subjected to 75 years of settler colonialism, 55 years of illegal occupation and 16 years of siege. But despite that, they have resisted for their right to live their lives in dignity in the way that anyone anywhere in the world would do. So we have to support and empower their voices and their resistance and their plight for self-determination. And we have to be really careful about picking and mixing when we support that right and when we support that resistance, because it's not for us, it's for the Palestinians. It's, it's the Palestinians to self-determination, it's their plight for self-determination. And we have to support that. And we have to completely understand that any kind of resistance that we may not like coming out of Palestine is completely and 100% as a result of the illegal occupation and years of siege. And no one, no one in, in the world has been able to stop Israel's illegal occupation and siege on Gaza. So if, you, if, if, if no other alternatives have worked for the Palestinian people and, and no one has been able to achieve any other kind of you know, peaceful alternative, the Palestinians are of course gonna resist and we have to be really careful about saying, we condemn this and this happening. No, that's not for us. Um, that's for the Palestinians. And secondly, kind of finding solutions for the Palestinians when our job as the international community should be empowering them to have a voice at the table to find their own solutions. I'm not going to debate a one-state or a two-state solution or whether we should be getting rid of Fatih or the Palestinian Authority or, you know, whether Hamas should be overseeded by the Palestinian Authority. All of those things, all of them should be discussed by Palestinians and there should be a consensus that's actually followed by Israel in, in a way that works for the Palestinian people. Because what we've seen so far is every freedom fighter for Palestine is labeled a terrorist. Yes, Arafat, you know, Palestine liberation, on you know, same, he was labeled a terrorist. So Oslo Accords, for example, peace, peaceful discussions, Israel has not honored any of them. So before we sit there and we say, we advocate for a one state solution, we as the international community have no voice in what the Palestinian people want in their plight for self-determination. And I think that's the bottom line. I think we should be encouraging their freedom and encouraging Palestinians for their empowerment and their self-empowerment and their own liberation. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, it's so important because I've seen people just try and overtake the conversation and change the narrative. And also um, a lot of people saying, oh, I'll adopt all the Palestinian children. I'll take them. And I was like, no, you, they'll be raised by neighbours and family. You don't need to be that saviour, taking them into a Western country and kind of making it better for them. Because no, that's really not it. And it was just like, seriously, <laughs> like, stop doing that, please. Absolutely. And I think that's so interesting that you mentioned that because there's so many examples where I know people mean so, so well. And we're so lucky to have so many allies and people in solidarity 
with us. But ultimately, the bottom line is none of these things would happen if there weren't war crimes happening in Gaza. That is the bottom line. Um, no matter how much money we raise here in 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 the Western world, or how you know m much money we're sending back home, X Y Z. All of us need to remember that this is all happening because of Israeli war crimes, and it's it's atrocious that nothing is happening to stop those things from the core. Um, yeah. It's always like, well, what about this and what about that and who started it? It's like, read a book and stuff. Have there been any books, documentaries or films where you think, yes, I need everyone to watch this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think one one thing that I massively kind of um, encourage everyone to go and do is the essential reading. There's no ifs, no buts. And I think there's some really good books out there on Palestine. But um, so, for example, like uh, Elan Pape um, has written, yeah, really, yes, on Palestine and also the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Noam Chomsky and Elan Pape are both great writers. They're both Jewish um, and they're both really, really well aligned on Palestine and Palestinian solidarity. Um, so credit to the movement. Another thing that I want to say is Mohammed Al Kurd, who is now so he's he's a content creator. Um, he has a massive Instagram and social media following. He's incredible, absolutely incredible, so well spoken, and has so many accessible. I mean, he's a writer, but has also so many accessible resources that are podcasts, for example, videos um, that he voices over. Um, so he's a really really good one to follow. Another thing is that I was invited by Community Kino, which was incredible, last week to a screening of, I think, I think it was Abby called Gaza. I think it was called, yes, Gaza. Abby Martin, Gaza. Yeah. Yes, that's the one. Um, it was absolutely incredible. So well researched. <laughs> yes, yeah. I was on I was on the panel and it was absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I recommend everyone to go away and, and watch that. And I just, I just, it, it, you know, it, again, it, it gets straight to the core of what's going on right now and completely, completely silences this, you know, the 7th of October was a terrorist attack. Actually, there's so much that predates the 7th of October um, and we would all do well to go away and know about that. Definitely. I think, um, I love Abby Martin, I think she's brilliant. And um, the fact that she had all this raw footage and actually showing what Gaza is because people just think it's either something like, I don't know, they just think it's this place where there's people just fighting and they're, they deserve it. And then they look and they're like, oh, medical staff there and there's just people there. I just thought, wow, I would think she's done a really good job in just saying this is Gaza and they're fighting for freedom, um, which was really good. And I think the amount of people in that room, it just showed that they were there for the right reasons and allyship and to learn and stuff, which is nice to see the changes in the past 10 years, I would say, just in like social media, um, I think has really sort of helped as well. Like what does the Palestinian sort of liberation look like for you? What would you want? Okay, that is a really good question. Well, I always quote Maxine. Um, I don't know if you've heard her. Maxine Bowler speaking at our protests. She's 
one hell of an incredible woman and she always always says we need a global intifada and we really need a global intifada um i think palestine now is becoming kind of the fire starter for this global intifada and it's kind of stirring discussions that we need systemic change no ifs no buts because if we carry on like this not just palestine um we're looking at climate you know the climate catastrophe that we're currently facing so many different issues that are you know they're just not going to get solved without systemic change um so we need a global intifada that's the first thing but what i want from the global intifada for the palestinian liberation is that i want palestinian voices to be heard and i want an end to the occupation and i want palestinian liberation from the river to the sea because until those things happen we're going to continue to watch an apartheid settler colonial state continue in the way that they are getting away with war crimes, getting away with illegal settlements, getting away with the ex existence of apartheid in 2023. There's no ifs, no buts. Those things are gonna continue unless we push pal Palestinian liberation. Um, so I think that needs to be our focus and for Palestinians to have a voice on the table because so often they don't. And we need to realize that we really need to push and empower them to do so. Um, through no fault of their own, yeah. again, deliberate policy choice. So I hope everyone that's listening to this, thank you so much for listening to this. It's, I'm, I mean, I can imagine the kind of demographic listening to this is going to be really, really aligned to what we're both saying. Um, so just keep fighting the good fight. Um, speak to everybody, get the word out, you know, speak to your friend, speak to your friend's friend, speak to your neighbor, speak to, you know, speak to your cat, speak to your dog, <laughs> spread the word, go to your workplaces. There's so much work to do. And we're so lucky to have such an amazing movement that's mobilizing. But don't forget why we're doing all of this, because we shouldn't have to do any of this. But yeah, yeah. thank you. No, thank you. And I think something I read online was because so many people have showed up for Palestine, we now get to talk about Sudan, Congo, raise other communities that haven't been heard and people wouldn't have heard of those unless there was so much movement because now it's acceptable to say these things out loud, which I think it's just like a sort of knock-on effect to say, oh, this is happening in 2023 because I know a lot of people have picked up a book in 2020 and were woke. <laughs> But the, the silence has then just been like very loud as well. So yeah, thank you so much thank you. Um, for being on here. And um, it's great to see you on the marches and stuff. And I think it's quite sad that Palestinians have had to spend a lot of time educating when they're also mourning and feeling a certain way, but still have to show up regardless of what they're going through. Yeah, I'm just really glad that what Palestinians have been saying for years and years is finally being heard um it's incredible to be living through this pivotal moment in history so thank you for having me on this platform and thank you for all the incredible work that you do really and seeing you at the marches it's been incredible and hopefully we will be there for palestinian liber liberation from the river to the sea so yeah definitely it's free palestine all day every day <laughs> every day